Good morning. Our second gospel lesson, or our second lesson, excuse me, comes from Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this good word, that you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. As we ponder this in the establishment of your church, we pray that you would guide us and teach us that we might, that we might always point to you. Well, good morning. My name is Lee Peilman. For those of you I haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'm delighted and honored to be here and eager to dive into this text with you. Jesus' question to the disciples, but who do you say that I am? In the Greek, it comes across even stronger, but you, what do you say about me? It's a searing question, a question that gets to the heart of the matter. Who do you say that he is? I imagine we would get a variety of responses from Christians today and in 2023, and even amongst a group like us. Things like, Jesus is God, Jesus is love, Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. He is my friend, he is the sacrificial lamb, Jesus is the victorious rescuer, Jesus is a great teacher, Jesus is Lord. How do these responses land with you? Jesus' question is an important one, and he demands an answer. Not your neighbor's answer or your pastor's answer, your answer. Who do you say that he is? The disciples throw out names that we've heard attributed to Jesus, Elijah, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, suggesting that Jesus is like one of the bold and confrontational prophets of ancient and recent times, God's mouthpiece against injustice, a miracle worker, a truth speaker. Yes, yes, Jesus says, but he wants them to go further. This moment reminds me of my past English teachers prodding me in my writing to lose the passive voice, be more direct, get to the heart of the matter. But you, who do you say that I am? And Peter, dear Peter, ventures an answer. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. 
As we think about our response to this question, we're going to spend some time sitting with three identity claims about Jesus from this passage, that he is the Messiah, that he is the son of the living God, and that he is the builder of the church. And we'll end our time thinking about discipleship as we bear witness to these truth claims. You know, my family and I tried to watch some of the Women's World Cup over the past month or two. We had a lot of fun watching Team USA play the Netherlands. Lindsay Horan's goal off a well-timed header corner kick sunk right into the back of the net was so fun to watch. As many of you know, the team had a devastating early exit a few weeks ago in the round of 16 and a nail-biting, brutal 5-4 penalty kick shootout against Sweden. Julie Ertz, midfielder and veteran of the team, was interviewed after the game and shared with viewers her great disappointment at the team's loss. She seemed in disbelief. Of course, they had been hoping to win the cup for the third consecutive time. Ertz herself had impressively trained after having had a baby last August and fought her way back to be on Team USA. And then in the middle of the interview, she sort of pauses and with a wisdom that reflects her appreciation for the bigger picture and identity of the women's national soccer team, a team known for their grit, their skill, their advocacy, and their failures to be sure, she expressed her pride in her teammates, her hopefulness for the rising generation of players and leaders on the team. And she said, you know, we always say we only rent these jerseys and it's our job to pass it down to the younger ones to continue that in their DNA. We only rent these jerseys, and it's our job to pass it down to the younger ones to continue that in their DNA. It got me thinking about the church, this legacy we are part of, this thing that Christ seems to establish in our text. What is it that is baked into the DNA of the church? What was so important about Peter's confession that it prompts Jesus to praise Peter's response and establish his church? After all, church is a word that is only found twice in all the gospels. So for the sake of the church, we should probably pay attention. The church and what she stands for seems to hinge on our answer to Jesus's question, who do you say that I am? Jesus allows them to feel their way there, and when Peter gets it, perhaps not fully understanding what he's even saying, Jesus latches onto it. Yes, I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and on this I will build my church. Our first identity claim about Jesus this morning, that he is the Messiah. To say that Jesus is the Messiah, or if we were to use the Greek origin word, we could say Christ, is to say that he is the one Israel has been waiting for. He has finally come. And this is good news for the Jewish people and for the whole world. This Messiah designation reminds us about God's story, God's story from the very beginning, 
He is the long-anticipated, anointed king, the Messiah who would spearhead the movement that would free Israel from oppression and bring justice and peace to the world at last. If that sounds a little winding and convoluted, it is. But it's this really beautiful, intricate story about how God unbelievably enters history and attaches to humanity, to Adam and Eve, to Abraham, to Moses and David, and through these people, from the very beginning, has been working to draw all people to God's self. Laura drew this point out for us last week in her homily when she reflected on the incredible boldness of the Canaanite woman from chapter 15, who affirms Jesus's messiahship, his Jewish royalty, calling him the son of David, but she then boldly presses beyond that, claiming God's redemptive promises for Gentiles and those on the margins like herself. She reminds us of the truth that with Israel's God, there has never been scarcity, but abundance and overflowing for all the nations. So here he is, the promised Messiah. He has come to overthrow evil, to rule as Israel's king, and to extend this abundance to all the nations. And next week, as we continue on in this chapter, the narrative will take a sober turn, and Jesus will begin to reveal to his followers that yes, he is the Messiah, but this Messiah's rule will not involve a violent overthrow of Rome, or Jesus wielding a sword, storming into Jerusalem on a white horse, it will involve suffering and death. This is a Messiah unlike any other. This was going to be hard for the disciples to grasp. Scholars think this is one of the reasons why Jesus tells the disciples to keep quiet at this point. Jesus is slowly peeling back the layers for his disciples, for the Jewish people, and for us today unveiling the kind of Messiah that he is. And what about this phrase, son of the living God, our second identity claim about Jesus? Here, son of God would have been understood and recognized as a biblical phrase, that this person, usually a leader or king, was uniquely connected to God and specially called to lead and serve as God's representative. We think of Israel called God's son in Exodus chapter 4, or King David was referred to as God's son in 2 Samuel 7. The phrase is also powerfully used when referring to the anointed king of Zion in Psalm 2, one who would create and establish and preserve order for God's people. So this rich title is given to Jesus, designating royalty, and God's favor and reinforcing this claim of messiahship. The phrase also extended to other cultures in that ancient world. For example, Egyptian pharaohs were referred to as son of a particular god, and Caesar Augustus, who founded and ruled the Roman Empire at the turn of the century, was called the son of the god. So here they are in Caesarea Philippi, a place honoring Caesar Augustus, and Peter boldly proclaims that Jesus has God's anointing. Jesus is the son of God, not Caesar. This was an incredibly bold and dangerous assertion to make. 
It's also good for us to be in conversation with the text and think about how this designation, Son of God, points us to the powerful claim that we Christians make that Jesus is very God. Son of God at this point in the story did not mean second person of the Trinity. That's Trinitarian language that was developed much later. However, at the time Matthew is writing this gospel, it's after Jesus' death, after the resurrection, after his later teachings and ascensions, and the early church, guided by the Holy Spirit, is beginning to have these aha moments. I wish I could be a fly on the wall there for this. They're reflecting on the gospel accounts and they're seeing again and again how the gospel writers were linking Jesus with God. That Jesus's identity is mysteriously fused with the identity of God. And so this phrase, son of God, is taking on rich new layers of meaning where the depth of God's plan mission and love unveiled in the person of Jesus deepens, allowing us to confess for centuries now as a church words from the Nicene Creed that we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father from before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus tells us that it is this confession of Peter's upon which the church is built. So let's talk some more about the church. First off, we note that Jesus is the builder. Our third identity claim about Jesus this morning. Verse 18, it says, I will build my church. Thank goodness it is not built on my grit, or your right convictions. It is not built on a sermon or a church infrastructure. It is not built on your good deeds, nor does it fall on my bad deeds. Our text tells us that Jesus is the builder. And not only that, but Peter says that, Jesus says that Peter's very confession was revealed by our Father in heaven. Jesus builds, God the Father reveals, Peter's ability and our ability to speak the truth is a gift from God, an act of God. This is grace, dear church. God the creator, Yahweh God, not only sent his son, the builder of the church, God sends faith in his son. Now as we ponder the church, our Catholic friends and brothers and sisters in Christ read this text and perhaps emphasize the importance of Peter's role in the building of the church. Honoring person Peter. Protestants and Eastern Orthodox emphasize pointing Peter, or what it is that Peter points to, his confession about Jesus. Both perspectives are helpful and can contribute to meaningful church unity. Seeing person Peter helps us honor and see this man who receives great praise from Jesus. There can be no denying that there is something exceptional and foundational about Peter's work and strong leadership in the church. He continues the work that Christ has established. He opens the gates of the kingdom and the redemptive promises of God, first to the Jews at the Jewish Pentecost in Acts 2, 
And with John, he opens them to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. And yet again, he leads the charge in opening up the church for the Gentiles in Acts 10, when Peter obediently goes to Cornelius' house. We see Peter eagerly and faithfully fulfilling Christ's charge, putting into work this incredible function of the church that we find in our text to bind and to loose a Jewish idea of carefully weighing and creatively applying and interpreting Torah and the Holy Scriptures for the benefit of God's people, a weighty and important work which continues today as we, the church, standing on the legacy of Peter, discern God's work and the movement of the Holy Spirit in the 21st century. And Protestants and Eastern Orthodox helpfully remind us that it is pointing Peter, what Peter points to that draws praise and upon which the church stands. Peter has been given from God the gift of his good confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and it is this pointing Peter, ever pointing to the person of Jesus, that is the rock, the confessional truth upon which the church stands. Christ-centeredness. That is the anchor. If anything can be said of us, let it be that like Peter, we pointed to Jesus. Now that we've reflected on Jesus's identity as the Jewish Messiah, son of the living God, and as the builder of the church, let's conclude with a word about discipleship, the application part of our time together living as those people who point to Christ. Standing on Peter's confession, we are called to participate in the work of the church. God help us. This calling can feel daunting. Are we good enough? And to this question, I wanna eagerly remind you and remind me of Peter's tragic and beautiful story. It's one of obedience and love and failures and huge tremendous shortcomings, failures that feel akin to the gut punch of crashing out of the World Cup before the quarterfinals have even begun. After this bright spot for Peter in chapter 16, confusion and ineptitude will follow, marking the bulk of the disciples' interactions with Jesus. In just a few verses after our text, Jesus will rebuke Peter, even calling him Satan, for the ways that Peter tries to coerce Jesus into being the kind of Messiah that he wants, rather than the suffering Messiah that Jesus is revealing himself to be. Peter is pretty clueless at the coming transfiguration. He's hung up on comparisons and scorecards between him and the disciple John. He sleeps when Jesus weeps in the Garden of Gethsemane. He brazenly embraces violence, cutting off the ear of a servant who is in the party arresting Jesus. And as we read about in all four Gospels, Peter denies knowing Jesus at the hour of his trial and crucifixion. Oh, Peter. And it doesn't stop there. After he is forgiven by Jesus after the resurrection, given the gift of the Holy Spirit and is the leader of the church, He's still a deeply flawed human being. He argues with Paul at a time when church unity was so fragile. He buckles again under pressure and doesn't sit with the Gentiles at mealtime, 
undermining the gospel and God's expanding mission and abundance of grace for all people. It's heartbreaking. And boy, can I see myself in every one of these screw-ups. My attempts to coerce Jesus into the kind of Messiah that I want him to be. The erratic behavior that allows me to shower my kids with love and affection one minute and then short-sightedly turn on them with anger and brashness when they can't obey me and put on a pair of sensible shoes for the park. The record-keeping and comparisons with my loved ones and peers. The desire to please and appease those in power so that I can grab on to my own little slice of power. The social media infighting amongst large personalities in the Western church that suck me in and harden my heart against brothers and sisters in Christ that I disagree with about this, that, or the other. The unnecessary fences that I construct preventing people from the grace and table of Christ. Like Peter, there are so many bizarre ways that I sabotage and shirk, shirk away from my first love and live in a way that denies Jesus' centeredness in my life. But like Peter, we can take heart that we draw our distinctiveness, not from our righteousness or our scrubbed resumes, but from the confession that claims us. I know that when I encounter him again, when you encounter him again, we don't need to bury ourselves in shame. We can disgracefully jump out of the boat and swim to our Savior and Lord waiting for us along the seashore, abounding in love and grace and forgiveness. And he will nourish us. He will prepare a meal right there on the sand over a warm and crackling fire and he will remind me and he will remind you that he's got this. He's the builder. His call is still on our lives. His love still claims our lives. Yes, he wants you and he wants me and there is work to be done. So be nourished for the journey ahead for we are called to follow him, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Will you pray with me?